Well, good morning again. Am I on? Not on. Yes, I'm on. Uh, well, one of the greatest blessings in my, in my life is my wife. Um, and I think we all have that experience, you know, because she, she is a blessing to everyone. And, you know, but she, she reminds me of things that I forget. Uh, like I forgot. No, I'm serious. No, but it's, it's actually true. Because I did forget to lead us in prayer for DJ and Mark as they go through this, this sad time. So let me just offer a quick prayer before we start the sermon. Lord, I pray that you would comfort DJ in this, this time of sorrow and sadness and dark valleys. And pray that you would equip Mark to be a support to her and to be the helpmate that you created him to be. And that you'd be with that family as they grieve, but as they also celebrate the life of of DJ's mom, Lord, and um, we just pray that you would allow us to be a support to them for everything that they might end up needing, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, several weeks ago, we talked about prayer in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gave us the model prayer for approaching the Father. <coughs> Pardon me. Jesus had just finished instructing the disciples on the standards for kingdom living, how to be salt and light, how to be blessed, how to avoid lust, how to avoid anger, and so on. And although those standards that Jesus described are beyond the reach of the sinful man, Jesus told us to ask our Heavenly Father for a kingdom character, and we will get it. He told us to ask, seek, and knock, and it will be given to us. We will find it. We will get it. God answers prayers, he promises answers, he promises granting the requests of his children, but as we said then, the promise of answered prayers is really only for believers who are children of the Father. They are the ones that have the opportunity, the privilege of coming into the Father's presence. The one who claims the promise must be living in obedience to the Father. 1 John 3.22 says, whatever we ask, we receive of him. Because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. But we also discuss that our motive in asking must be correct. James 4.3 says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. Not with the wrong words, but with the wrong motivation. What just happened? (laughs) So is there one I should turn off here or what? Oh, now it's working. It wasn't working before. So I have to repeat all that? Nobody heard me in the back row. All right, okay. Well, whatever, whatever, it's fine. It's fine, whatever it is. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. Not the wrong words, but the wrong motivation for the things that we ask for. We must be submissive to God's will. James 1, 7 and 8 says that a double-minded man must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. And 1 John 5.14 says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So Jesus' promise and command, ask and you will receive, was the centerpiece of his first sermon. And also his last sermon at the Last Supper in John 16.24, where he said the same thing, ask and you will receive. So what, what we know and what we learn is that prayer, and we're going to talk about prayer today, prayer is the battleground against this present evil age and against the father of lies. Prayer is our armament. Prayer is what we do 
in order to spread the good news of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so today in Colossians, we're going to discuss the Apostle Paul's prayer for the congregation at Colossae and see how it accords with God's will. Now this is Paul's model prayer, but instead of a prayer to approach the Father, this is a model prayer for intercession, for how we pray for other people. And it perfectly expresses God's will for his children, and we know that because it's a part of the Holy Scriptures which is given to us is inerrant, and it's given to us by God in order to show us the way to live. It gives us an example of how to fight the battle. I love kids. I really do. Because they, it, you know, and I love having kids in the congregation because it is a sign that we are alive and growing, and, and we're just so grateful for that. Although it's very embarrassing for the parents always. <laughs> We, we have stories. Anyway, so let's, we'll read uh, the scripture that we're going to be covering today, Colossians 1, 9 through 14. And so, okay, now this is Paul writing to the Colossians, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience, with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins." Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we hear the words that you have given to us about prayer and about redemption through the work of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would plant those in our hearts so that we might not sin against you, Lord, that we might glorify you, and Lord, that you would take the words of the preacher today, take out everything that is of sin, and that you would let your Holy Spirit use these words to be able to teach, instruct, and exhort the people today, Lord. Amen. All right, so verses 9 through 11 contain Paul's petitions, what he's asking for, and verses 12 through 14 contains Paul's praises, what he's thanking God for. Because praise needs to be a part of all prayers and petitions. And as a young Christian, I learned the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S, for using when I prayed. It stands for Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and supplication. And I've used it since that time, not every time I pray, but I start out by praising God, I confess my sins, um, I give thanks, and then I ask for what it is that I'm going to ask for. You might have noticed that's what I did in the congregational prayer today. Um, it's not a formula, but it is a way to make sure that you include the different things in your prayer that God might want to hear from you. But at the heart of Paul's mission, was this deep passion for his churches. Every one of his letters, and even in the book of Acts, it talks about his love for the brethren, his love for the churches. Um, He loved. He loved like Jesus loved. But most of his letters also contain prayer for his churches. And so today we're going to discuss the nature of his requests and how they apply to us. And this is instructive not only for Paul specifically and the church at Colossae then and the churches in the first century, 
And it's not only applicable to pastors generally who pray for their congregations, but for each of us as we offer prayers for those around us. Mark eleven twenty four says, Therefore I tell you, this is Jesus talking, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. So how does this all fit in with God's word about prayer and obedience, our motives in praying and abiding in Jesus? Well, Paul's prayer here in Colossians provides, uh, forms an excellent example of a model prayer to offer for one another when we need to pray for somebody else. We are called in the scriptures to pray for one another. Ephesians 6.18 says, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, to that end keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. 1 Timothy 2.1 says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. The writer of Hebrews asks his readers to pray for us. The Bible is full of examples, Old Testament, of God's people praying for each other. Job prayed for his friends at the end of the book. Moses prayed for Aaron and Miriam when they had sinned. Daniel prayed for Israel. Jesus prayed for his disciples and so on. There's examples of people praying for other people. And because prayer is critical, Paul starts his letter by sharing his prayers for the Colossians before he begins to teach them. Paul begins by telling the Colossians that he has been tireless in his prayers for them. He has, what does it say, I, we have not ceased to pray for them. His is a persistent prayer. And if you remember, think of the neighbor who pounds on the door looking for the loaves of bread for the visitor that comes and doesn't stop pounding until the neighbor comes to the door and gives him what he's asking for. Okay? Think about the persistent widow who keeps badgering the judge for justice until he gives in. That's the kind of persistent prayer that Paul is talking about. I have not ceased to pray for you. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1.11, we always pray for you. Ephesians 1, 16 and 17 says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 17 famously tells the church at Thessalonica, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. What does that look like? How do you pray without ceasing? And for whom do we pray? Now, Paul is now praying for a church about whom he has just received a favorable report. It's not a church that's necessarily falling into apostasy. It's not people that are sick or dying. He just heard good things. He just described the good things that he heard about them. And it may seem unnecessary sometimes to pray for those who are doing well. Much of our prayer focuses on those who are having difficulties of one kind or another. And that's right to do that, obviously. But the knowledge that others are progressing in the faith or are standing firm should never cause us to stop praying for them. Rather, it should encourage greater prayer because the enemy reserves his strongest opposition for those who have the most potential for expanding God's gospel. He's always after those at the top of their game. That's why people that have just had a great triumph is usually followed by a great depression or a great attack because that's what Satan does. He takes those great triumphs And he tries to undermine them. And we need to pray for not only those that are suffering, but those that are doing well. So unceasing prayer first demands an attitude of God consciousness. 
You don't need to be verbally praying all the time, praying out loud, but we should view everything in life in relation to God. We should immediately praise when we hear good things. Thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you, Lord, for that. When we speak with someone, we should consider their standing before God. When we see the cashier at Lynn's or whatever, we're talking to them. Ponder the relationship with God. Even if we don't ask them about it, pray for that. Pray for that. If we hear of something bad happening, we ask God to intervene because we know He cares about things that happen. As we look around the world, everything that we see should prompt us to pray in some way. Even when we see the chairs all lined up in the morning, we come in, we pray, and we thank God for the person that did that because if it wasn't done, it would be chaos. So we pray for everything that we see. But we need to be conscious of God in everything that we see around us. A second aspect of unceasing prayer is that we have to know the people around us to be able to pray God's will for them. We cannot effectively pray for people unless we are aware of their needs. Paul tells the Colossians later in this letter to be alert in prayer, to look and see what's happening around us, to know the people around us that we're praying for. Paul was a great prayer. I mean, he has great prayers in in the Scriptures. When the Holy Spirit included Paul's prayers in God's Word, he meant it to be instructive for us. These are prayers in accordance with God's will in that time and place, and they're instructive for today as well if we know the people around us, to see that they, that how, they, how we apply this to their lives. And when we consider our prayers, it is important that we don't ask for too little. A lot of times we're pretty modest in our prayer requests. Well, you know, God, if you could do this, that would be great. No, Paul notes how fantastic the Colossians are doing. They've gotten all this. And then he says he's praying for them because of that reason, because they've gotten this much. He wants more for them. God is an extravagant God. Pray extravagantly in accordance with God's will for the people that you're praying for. Well, I mentioned last week that Colossians was one of my favorite books and that it contains many verses that I've memorized and use as life verses, and I'll identify some of those as we go through. But this prayer that we just read is a prayer that I pray every day for my children and my wife. Okay? And I break it down. What I did was I, I wrote it down on a piece of paper. I put it in my Bible, and every day I, pr- I take it out, and I broke it down into the different elements of what Paul has talked about here. And the way that I do this is that I recite each one's name, and I ask them then that they be filled with knowledge of your will, that they have all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that they walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, that they be fully pleasing to you, that they bear fruit in every good work, that they increase in the knowledge of you, that they be strengthened with all power according to your glorious might, that they have endurance and patience with joy, and that they give thanks to the Father for qualifying them to share in the inheritance of the kingdom of Jesus. This truly is a model prayer when you think about praying this for people in your lives. And since it's a part of God's word, we know that it's his will that we pray this for each other. Now, I have faith that he will grant that prayer for my children and my wife. I don't always see it, and we don't always see the answers to our prayers. And yet I know it's in accordance with God's will for every believer that those things happen to them if if we pray. And I trust and have faith that God will do that in their lives. And I pray it every day because he wants me to be persistent in my prayers. Well, let's look at the different petitions of the prayer. 
The first, in verse 9, filled with knowledge of his will. Not just a smattering of Bible verses, not just memorizing a few things, but filled, filled with knowledge of his will. The Greek word that's used here for filled, it's pleuro, it means to be completely filled or totally controlled by what fills the person. Okay? So, like the disciples, when faced with Jesus' departure, the Bible says they were filled with sorrow. Sorrow overwhelmed them. It was Their whole life was this sorrowful feeling about that. Paul wants the Colossians to be totally controlled, totally filled with knowledge of God's will. He wants them to have a deep and thorough knowledge. Well, how does that happen? Well, not simply by reading and studying, although that's important. In chapter 2, verse 3, we'll learn that all of these treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ and are waiting to be unlocked by the action of the Holy Spirit, if only we would ask. So how do we obtain knowledge? Well, the first thing, I don't know, there's probably some teachers in here. The way that students obtain knowledge is they need to desire it. You can teach somebody until the cows come home, and if they don't want to learn it, they're never going to learn it, okay? So the first way we obtain knowledge is that we must desire it. And then we must depend upon the Holy Spirit to acquire it, and we must study the Scriptures in order to make that happen. We must abide in Christ. The key to righteous living is having the knowledge of God's Word control our minds and actions. Okay? I mean, everybody's heard these things, but we need to own it. We need to be filled with it so that we believe it and we act in that accord. Knowledge of the Word leads to wisdom and understanding. Now, in our culture today, there is a denial of absolutes, particularly in the area of morals and character. We, we hear that that's really my truth, your truth, my justice, your justice. But basically, in today's culture, anything goes. But God's Word provides absolutes to us. And the knowledge of those absolutes is the basis for correct behavior and ultimate judgment. Ignorance is not bliss. Believe it or not, ignorance is not bliss. True biblical knowledge results in obedience because we are filled and controlled by it. We have no alternative but to obey because we're so filled with the knowledge and love of God in Jesus Christ. Now, our tendency when we're thinking about the will of God is to try to discern the specific will of God for some issue that's come up in our lives. Like, should I buy this house? Should I take the vaccination? Should I move to Rapid City? Should I marry this person? Whatever. But the bigger picture of the Bible sees God's will as the divine narrative of redemption Because that's what the Bible is all about. It's the redemption of man from the fall in the garden, from creation to the kingdom, which is here now but will come in full when Jesus Christ comes again. For example, the Bible tells us that it's God's will and desire that a person be saved. That's part of God's will. Once a person is saved, it's God's will that he be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5, 17 and 18 says, Do not be foolish, but understand what the, will of the law, what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Further, God's will for us is sanctification, to become holy. God also wills that the believer, tough one, be submissive to the government. Peter writes, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, for such is the will of God. 
We're not going to talk about, you know, just versus unjust or civil disobedience, whatever. But God wills that we be submissive to government and to people in authority. Suffering may also be God's will for the believer. Giving thanks is God's will. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It is God's will that we give thanks. And so there are certain things that we know precisely what God's will is because it says it right in the Bible. It tells us these are his will. And Paul's prayer here is that the Colossians have this spiritual wisdom and understanding because this wisdom and understanding, when we get it from God's word and we get it from God's spirit, is not deceived by the wiles of Satan or the lure of the flesh. We are able to perceive the truth when we know that. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in human hearts. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. We live amongst fools. We really do live amongst fools. And I mean that in the spiritual sense, not necessarily the sense of things that we experience with people in our day-to-day life. The wisdom that we get from the Word grows over time. We don't get it all at once. It's not God's plan that we're burdened with all of this wisdom at one time. We would be prone to arrogance. I was prone to arrogance. When I started studying the Bible, I got it. And I would tell anybody what I thought about it, you know. And, and I just thank God that there were people of grace around me that said, that's very interesting. Keep on studying and let me know where you get to with that. <laughs> you, know? But they, you know, but they didn't chide me. They didn't yell at me. They didn't tell me, you know, you are wrong. You're stupid. They were graceful with me. But I thought I knew it all. And so that's what we're talking about here, this, 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 this wisdom that grows over time, Job starts out the book of Job as a righteous man. And he's complaining, and he thinks he knows exactly what's going on and and how, and he's putting God on trial. He says, here's my charges against you, God. Stand in the dock. Let me see how you respond to my charges. And of course, we all know how that turned out. God says, gird yourself like a man, and I'm going to ask you some questions. And, And Job was reduced to a puddle, basically, at that point, right? But what he says in chapter 42, he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, and therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After all these years of being a righteous man, God gives him this wisdom and insight, and he realizes how insignificant he he really is. But it grew over time, and that required wisdom for him to know that. For him to be able to see that, he had to have gotten wisdom. And so this filling of wisdom and knowledge of God is a process for all of us. And Paul prays for these believers in Colossians that God would fill them with knowledge of his will so that they would have all spiritual wisdom and understanding to be able to carry out their role in God's grand and glorious plan. That's the reason for the wisdom. It's not for self-aggrandizement. It's not for patting me on the back or whatever. It's so that you can carry out your role in God's plan. So next, Paul talks about, verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Well, Paul here is alluding to, not specifically citing it, but alluding to Psalm 1, verses 1 and 3, which says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. Walking in a manner 
Not standing, not sitting, but walking. Living a worthy life is the result of knowing God's desire for your life. And clearly the knowledge of God's will is not imparted just for our own understanding. It is given with the practical intent that we use it to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And because we do that in God's kingdom, which is his church, we need to do it within the church, these walls here and in the church universal as well. And Paul says, well, we're supposed to be fully pleasing to God. Well, how is our walk pleasing to God? Is it pleasing to God? Well, we're to walk in humility, and I'm not going to give you all the verses, but these are all from the different letters of Paul. We're to walk in humility. We're to walk in purity. We're to walk in contentedness. We're to walk by faith. We're to walk in good works. We're supposed to be different from the world. We're supposed to walk in love. We're supposed to walk in light and in wisdom and in truth. And if we did all those things, we would be fully pleasing to God. Now, regrettably, we can't because we don't have the ability to do that. The Holy Spirit assists us. The Holy Spirit continues to change us so we become more and more like him. You know, And uh, hopefully by the time we pass from this world, we'll be moved on quite a bit from that. But you know, some of the greatest saints from the, from the Puritan age would say on their deathbed, I see now what a great sinner that I really am. Because we just learn that as we go on in life that, you know, as um, John Calvin said, we're, we're factories of idols. We create idols every day, new idols. And that's the nature of us. So we need to continue to work on that and to become aware of that so that we seek God's wisdom and knowledge. And just so we know how important it is for us to be fully pleasing to God, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And that should be a sufficient motivation for us to be pleasing to God, to be pleasing to God. Let us be fully pleasing, and let us pray that those around us would also be pleasing to God. So next, Paul says, bearing fruit in every good work. Well, one of the primary fruits that we bear as members of the church of Jesus Christ as believers is converts, is people that we bring into the fellowship, people that we bring into this relationship of faith in Jesus Christ. Paul referred to converts as fruits in both Corinthians and Romans. Hebrews also defines praise as fruit. Praise is one of the fruits we're supposed to bear. And it says at 13.15, Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Giving money can be fruit, as Paul tells the Romans. Godly living is fruit, as the writer of Hebrews said, that God's discipline produces in us the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And of course, Galatians 5 famously describes the fruits of the Spirit. Those are fruits as well. But what produces fruits in believers' lives? Well, Knowledge of his will, spiritual wisdom, understanding, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, and being fully pleasing to him. Those are the things that result in this fruit. And that's what Jesus said in John 15, 4 and 5. Abide in me, I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit in itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. 
Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit from apart from me. For apart from me you can do nothing. That's how we bear fruit. We abide in Christ. We, we do those things which enable us to abide in Christ. Well, next, increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, this is different than simply increasing in knowledge of his will, which was in verse 9. Paul here is praying for spiritual growth, which comes when the Holy Spirit couples our efforts with God's grace. How do we know we're growing spiritually? Do we have a greater love, a deeper love for God's word? Psalm 119.97 says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Can any of us say that? I pray so. I know that I, many times, not all the day, but that's the deep love for God's word that he wants us to have. Are we striving for a more perfect obedience? Are we growing in love towards God and our brethren? Well, next, being strengthened with all power. And note here that Paul asks for all power. All power. Not power according to what we think we need. Oh, I need, I need, I need some strength to get through this trial. No, Paul's saying all power. According to God's abundant supply, God's extravagance. It is the power that we get to engage in a moral conflict with the cosmic powers of this sinful world. We need all of his power to fight that battle. Because we don't know the weapons that are coming against us. We are strengthened with what? With his glorious might. The power available to us is the limitless power of God himself. God himself gives us all of his power. And we get this power through the Holy Spirit. Jesus told the disciples in Acts 1.8 that they would receive this power after the Holy Spirit came upon them. And if they got it, we get it when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. We have all of this power. This power is available to us as we are filled with the knowledge of God's Word. And then he says, giving thanks to the Father. And we circle back now to thanks, which began the book. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. That's what he starts out in verse 3. So we circle back to thanks, which should be the refrain of our lives. We should be thankful about everything. It is certainly the refrain of Paul's life. He says it all the time in what we have in his writings. And I'm guessing that if you had the opportunity to sit down with Paul, you'd hear that word thanks an awful lot. An awful lot. He says in Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Always. Everything. See, our thanks are not necessarily for the circumstances that have come into our lives. Our thanks is that there is a God who loves us. We praise God for who He is. He can help if you want. We praise God for who He is, not for what He does, because He is God. MacArthur says that our attitude in approaching God is often reminiscent of the leech's daughters. I don't know how many of you have read Proverbs 30, 15, but there's this really obtuse verse in there. It says, the leech has two daughters who cry, give, give. And I'm like, what the heck does that mean? And nobody really knows what it means. But our attitude in approaching God is like that. Maybe that's why it's there. It, it's like that. It's like, give, give. God, I need this. I need that. I need, you know, do these things. We're quick to make our requests to God, and we're slow to thank Him sometimes for His answers. And we're slow to thank God for every breath we take. Are we thanking God as we sit here? 
Thank you for allowing me to sit here. Thank you for this breath. We forget that it is only by His grace that we receive anything from Him. We deserve nothing, but He gives us everything. So Jesus knew the importance of giving thanks. In Matthew eleven twenty five, He said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Before feeding the 5,000, Jesus gave thanks after he took the loaves. Just before raising Lazarus from the dead, John 11.41 says, Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Jesus found it necessary to thank God. We also must find it necessary to thank God in everything. The angels give thanks in the book of Revelation. David, the Levites, the priests all gave thanks to God. That was a part of what they did. An indictment of unbelievers in the Bible is that, from Romans 1.21, even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. Evil men are marked by ungratefulness, says Luke 6.35. Evil men are marked by ungratefulness. Let us not be marked by ungratefulness. Let us be grateful all the time. But mostly, what what should make us most thankful is the work of Jesus Christ. What he did for us. 2 Corinthians 9.15, Paul says, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And it is indescribable. We can talk about it. We We have the words. But to really get what it is, it is indescribable. And thanks be to God for that. And that's Paul's theme in the next few verses where he sums up this theory or this doctrine of salvation and three truths that go along with it. Inheritance, our inheritance, deliverance, and transference. They are indeed a cause for thanksgiving for each and every one of us. We give thanks to who? The Father, which acknowledges our new position as sons of God and members of the family of Jesus Christ. What a blessing and a gift of grace to be able to refer to the creator of the universe as our Father, with all the privileges and honor that comes with that. That's what we get. We give thanks because God has by grace qualified the unqualified, to share in this inheritance. None of us were qualified, and yet he qualifies us. The Greek text for inheritance, the word inheritance, literally reads the portion of the lot, which was a technical legal term having to do with inheritances and property. And what it means is that we have received our individual allotment or portion of the total inheritance. Okay? So what Paul's alluding to here is the partitioning of Israel's inheritance in Canaan, which was described in Numbers. If you remember, they go into Canaan and they draw lots, and each one of them, depending upon how many people were in the tribe, got a certain portion and they carved up all the territory that way. Well, just as the the Israelites received their inheritance in the promised land, a specific thing, we also receive our portion of the divine inheritance. And this inheritance consists, firstly, of eternal life. Jesus describes that many times in his Gospels. The inheritance also includes the earth. We inherit the earth. We inherit the recreated earth, the new heavens, the new earth. But we inherit this earth now, the kingdom that exists now on this earth. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that believers would inherit the earth. And we look forward to that, both now and in the future. And we also inherit all the promises of God. Now, clearly, the earth is still evil, and is still the, the evil one still runs rampant through it. But the kingdom has come, and it is here, and it is in this room. It is in the church of Jesus Christ, and we have an inheritance in that. We are the saints in light, 
who have been separated from the world and set apart to God. As he says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and he's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Unlike Israel's earthly inheritance, our inheritance is in the spiritual realm of truth and purity where God himself dwells. Our guarantee for that inheritance is the indwelling Holy Spirit. The Spirit and the Word give us confidence and understanding of our inheritance. We have it. It's ours. Now, verses 13 and 14 describe this new, the new exodus. Okay. Isaiah spoke a lot about the new exodus um, in, in uh, chapters 49 and 50, which are called the Suffering Servant Songs. And in verse 61, which Jesus read in the synagogue in Nazareth, you know, the, the, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news, and Jesus read that. And in, verse, in chapter 62 and 63 of Isaiah, it describes the new heavens and the new earth. And this theme of Isaiah was that just as God had delivered the nation of Israel from the evil things that were happening in the land of Egypt, he's going to do the same for his people again. And, of course, the Israelites thought it would be a political exodus, that they would be brought into some back into their land and everybody would be kicked out. But Jesus knew that that wasn't the case. And so Paul here is talking about this, this, this new exodus, okay? So we have been removed from this domain of satanic darkness to the glorious light of the kingdom of Christ after the sacrifice of Jesus now, the kingdom is spiritual, and it's here right now. It's more than a future kingdom. Paul calls it a kingdom of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. This present kingdom is the relationship men in this age have with God through Jesus Christ. And so we have this, this exodus, this new exodus, which God promised through the prophets that he would take his people out of this captivity of a dark, and dismal land full of sin and full of evil, and he would transfer them into the kingdom of the Son who he sent to us. And then he says, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Well, of course, this is the main feature of redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And this is not for us some sort of eternal layaway, which I called it last time, where we put in our time here on earth and know that there'll be heaven with Jesus when we die and, and, and go away. No, our forgiveness of sins and redemption place us smack dab in the middle of the kingdom of God's beloved Son, right here, right now. We need to live up to our status as sons of the Father and shine brightly so that we attract the unbelieving world to Him. And we've got to remember also that this forgiveness of sins, which Paul talks about, is not only to our own experience and our own sins, but it's also a corporate forgiveness of sins. And it has to do with the historical salvation story in, in the Bible itself. As God always intended with Abraham, Gentile believers were to be drawn into the Israel of God by virtue of the conduct of Abraham and his children in the nation of Israel. They were supposed to be this beacon. People saw that and said, wow, this is really cool what you guys have. This is really special, unlike what we're living with. And they were supposed to be drawn into that. And alas, the nation of Israel fell, fall short. They adopted other gods. They adopted the gods of the worlds around them. 
to the point actually where they were sacrificing their children along with the gods along with them. And so God sent them into exile. But that's always been God's intent, is to save men, salvation of all men, by bringing them to himself, by showing them what true believers look like, what the true sons of God look like. And so with us, we're drawn into this kingdom of God by the redemptive work of God's Messiah, Jesus Christ, and the blessings of redemption and liberation from sin are extended to those who formerly were excluded, Gentiles. It is through the forgiveness of sins that the healing of God's people takes place. So how is the kingdom present today? It becomes present through God's redemptive act in Christ Jesus. Where is the kingdom today? It's located in the church. It is not just ethics or social justice which show the presence of God's kingdom, although they do. It's the church, the new Israel, God's chosen people selected by him to attract men to himself. Paul reminds the Colossians that Christ's death on our behalf paid the price to redeem us. That God forgave our sins because of his death and he granted us an inheritance and delivered us from the powers of darkness and made us citizens of Christ's kingdom. Just like God delivered the Egyptians by the shedding of the blood of the Lamb. I mean, delivered the Israelites from Egypt by the shedding of the blood of the Lamb. He does the same for us, delivering us out of this domain of darkness. These truths should cause us to give thanks to God continually, as Paul tells us to do in his prayer. They should cause us to pray without ceasing for those around us, both the saved and the unsaved. And we need to bring these people in front of God and make intercession for them. And if you're here today and you have never accepted this free gift from God, today is the day to do so. There is no better day than today. Acknowledge your sins. Know that you have made idols in place of God, as did every one of us here before we became believers in Christ Jesus. Admit that you have gone your own way and that your sins will be punished by God someday. And then confess those sins. Repent. Turn from them and believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and redeemed you from this evil age that we live in. And he will transfer you into the kingdom of his glorious light so that you can have a relationship with your creator God. Confess that Jesus is Lord over all and you will be saved. What a wonderful Savior we serve. He has qualified us. He has delivered us. He has transferred us from the dark domain of the liar and the father of lies into the kingdom of his truth where there is joy. Join us there. Heavenly Father, in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would draw men and women to you, those who have not placed their faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ, Lord, that you would show them the means and the method to do that, that you would raise up people here to pray for them, whether they're in our families, our communities, and our workplaces, Lord. We should pray continuously for them. And Lord, let us offer up prayers. Show us the way. Give us the way to pray. Lord, teach us to pray, that we may pray for those around us, that we would build them up in Jesus Christ so that they might also know the fullness of joy that comes with your presence, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.